0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It strikes me as I listen to these two readings how perfectly adapted crime fiction is, to get into political comment, to, to get Practically us Practically synonyms. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> regrettably.
0: <laughs> that, that a, and from very different subjects, very different political subjects, and from very different angles. Now, one of the things that both these men bring to their fiction is experience, and that's one of the first things I wanted to talk about, because I think it's really interesting that they started out... In law enforcement, in some manner or form, and ended up as writers. So I'd like to talk yeah, get some idea of how that journey started, David. Uh, I know that you started out because
1: you were looking for material, weren't you? Um, yeah, I, I wasn't a PI who became a writer. I was a writer who became a PI. I was actually studying acting and trying to and writing some short stories. I'm not sure which way I wanted to go. And uh, two people I was in acting. This is, I mean. This is such a stupid story, it has to be true. Um, Two people I was in acting school with said, well, if you want to write stories, you should get a job where we work because you can't beat it for material. And it was Palladino and Sutherland, this private investigation firm, which is pretty much the Cadillac firm on this side of the Mississippi. They just, uh, they were in the middle of the uh, DeLorean trial at that place. They'd taken taken a big part in the first uh, Hells Angels case. And so they were on the rise, and, and so I bugged them. They said, they, don't, they said the reason they hired me, because I was the most persistent applicant they'd ever had. And, um, and then at my three-month review, they said, but you know, we knew you'd be able to write, but we didn't think you'd have this good an attitude. And I, something about the job just kind of clicked for me. I just really loved it. Um, I thought about being a lawyer earlier on, and then had wavered off course. And this was like being a lawyer, but at street level. And I just thought, these will be my years at sea. You know, this is what I will write about in one form or another. And I think Barry can probably speak to this as well. It isn't so much data that you gather. It's a worldview that you accumulate over the years of doing this kind of work. Whereas just like Barry said, you read the story and, and you go, wait a minute. Right. <laughs> and you just, you know, you're, you're always reading the holes in the story, not the story. And, and and as writers, of course, that's what we do. We're always filling in the holes. And uh, but it's just that when you read news accounts, you you see the holes almost automatically. Given if you've ever worked on a headline case, if you've ever you know worked on something that was in the news, and you realize what's not there, um, I think that's probably informs my writing more than anything else. What's not there,
0: Barry? You presumably have to talk about what's not there.
2: Um. <clears throat> David put that so nicely, I don't really have anything to add, except maybe just on the, on the personal side. I didn't go to the CIA thinking that I was going to be a novelist, although I should have at the time. I've always liked to write ever since I was a little kid, and I've always thought it would be a really great way to make a living being a novelist. So in some ways, it's actually really pathetic that it took me until I was about 30 years old uh, to realize, well, you, you, you like this, you're good at it. Have you ever decided to give it a try and see if you can make a living at it? Um, now, when I went to the CIA, I had... Uh, I'm reading a, a great book right now. I'd really recommend listening to it in the car by Andrew Basovich. It's called Washington Rules. And mm, t- I'd I love him. It's, yeah, so do I. He's, he's an amazing he's, writer. He's man. fantastic. He just did a really nice uh, online chat on Fire Dog Lake, uh, Lake today. Anyway, he talks about his kind of road to Damascus moment when um, he went to the Brandenburg Gate and realized uh, just how, how shabby uh, the Soviet Union really had been. And he had thought of them as all, he'd been trained to think of them all as 10 feet tall. Um, and until that time, his education, as he put it, was mostly just a collection. It was the collecting of inert facts. That's how I was at the CIA, really. I think I had a good education, Ivy League education, and I read a lot about the world. But there were mostly inert facts in my head. Uh, it wasn't until later, until I started writing, until I started getting uh, more and more of my news and commentary from the blogosphere, that I would say I started to understand things. And uh, that'll be a lifelong process, I'm sure, but I seem to be making reasonably good proce- progress. Um, I, ha- I just have to share one quick thought on this this notion of seeing the holes in the story. Um, I, I have to show you the cover of I don't know if you've seen it this week's Time magazine. It's right over here. I'm just going to grab it, and it's it's a pretty horrifying photo. So brace yourselves.
1: Oh, I uh, know what photo you're going to talk about. And um, it's on the
2: top shelf. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's got it. Good. Has anyone seen this? Uh, this issue of the magazine. So you can see this is a a photograph of an Afghan girl who had her nose and ears cut off. It's a very disturbing thing to see, obviously, right? Here's what the caption says. What happens if we leave Afghanistan? Underneath that it says, Aisha, 18, had her nose and ears cut off last year on orders from the Taliban because she fled abusive in-laws. Okay, can you spot the problem in the logic? What happens if we leave Afghanistan? This happened to this girl a year ago when we were in, Afghanistan. What's wrong with this picture? What would a Martian say? A logical Martian? (laughs) It just doesn't make any sense. It's crazy. It's propaganda. I don't mean to get this political so soon in the conversation, but I saw this thing and it just blew me away. I thought, look, if anything, this is is a reason to not be in Afghanistan. This is happening while we're in Afghanistan. If we don't want these things to happen, then logically, the inference you would draw is, well, we shouldn't be there because these things are happening while we're there. And yet the person who wrote this article used this horrifying emotional photo to bring people to the opposite conclusion, which is that we can't leave Afghanistan. Otherwise, these things that are happening while we're there will start happening stunning. So when you pay attention, whether you've spent time as a PI or maybe some time in the CIA or you just spent a lot of time in the blogosphere as I do now, you start to spot the way you're being manipulated by uh, the establishment media.
0: One of the things that interests me about both your books is that you guys have extremely uh, political viewpoints, but you have really, I think, very different prose and storytelling approaches uh, to, to get those across. and, and, and that inspire, though, that are inspired by those. Uh, David, tell me about how you how you start your stories. Um, you, we we heard the beginning at least uh, of your story. Uh, talk about like crafting the characters in in your novel and bringing that, turning that political passion into something that's, uh, you know, a great
1: a ripping yarn. <laughs> Um, I'd like to say that it just happens at the snap of my fingers. Um, now uh, just so everyone knows, that, that section that I read is sort of the setup, and what we do is we go back three months and we the, the rest of the story until the end, we return to the, the rancher and his wife at the very end, but the rest of the book is telling the story of how that young man and that girl got to be there. And the young man ends up being an American. He is an American, he's a Salvadoran American, he's an American citizen, and um, he has went down to El Salvador to get his uncle who was deported and help bring him back and i my third book took place in El Salvador and that was because I met somebody I I like to say my politics were formed by a lifelong commitment to such and such but I met this woman from El Salvador and I had been interested in, in you know Central America during the 80s of course when we were very heavily involved there and uh, did work for some groups the Guatemala News and Information Bureau and and some other groups but Uh, Meeting Ana was an eye-opener and um, I don't want to steal too much fire here, but I mean her personal story was so engaging I knew I needed to write about this part of the world. And she opened El Salvador in a way that I just hadn't seen. Well, That got me to get to know her family. And once you get to know immigrant families, you realize that in every immigrant, especially a Latino family, that they're called mixed status, which is, you know, there's going to be citizens, there's going to be legal immigrants, there's going to be illegal immigrants, all in the same household. So they all sense this, this sense of threat very viscerally. And, um, and yet they're, they're doing everything they can just to try to make, I mean, you know, Anna came here just to make sure her life or her kids would mean something, that her kids would have a future. And so, I, for me, it was just a very personal connection. And I just saw, um, I have done musicians before, and, um, and I was at, when I was 18, I was a musician. And so, Roke, okay, I made him a musician just because, f- for some reason, that works for me. And um, I wanted to make him a young phenom. You know, people are calling him the next Carlos Santana. And, uh, but the gifts, uh, were the guys who came out of nowhere were his brothers. And that's uh, Godot and Happy, whose name is Pablo, but they call him Happy because he's never happy. And um, which is sort of the, you know, the, there's this weird logic, you know, like it's always the biggest guy in the gang who's called Tiny and that kind of thing. And, um, and they, they just, they, they just kind of came to me. And Godot in particular, who was just a, you know, the muse just happened to be my friend when I would, had him on the page because he's, he's a Marine who joined the court to atone to his uncle for having done something stupid that got his uncle's son deported. Happy got deported earlier. And so Godot wants to atone, joins the Marines, goes to Iraq, takes place in the first battle of Fallujah, and uh, in the course of the aftermath of that, gets terribly wounded and comes back sort of in pieces, but his anger is intact. (laughs) And um, I just kind of sailed with that. And then the, the other people were based on people that I knew or were composites of people I knew, and not all Latinos, I mean the, the father figure is also partially based on my own father, who was a truck driver, and, so, and he's, I, my, the uncle in the family is a port truck driver, and because of my last book in, um, was dedicated to a teamster who was murdered in El Salvador, um, the teamster sort of embraced the book, and I got to know all these guys who work at the Port of Oakland, and so that sort of opened up a window for me, and so it was kind of useful.
2: I just have to add, I'm only 100 pages into the book. I only started it the day before yesterday, and, and it's been a crazy two days, so I haven't had t- too much time to read. It's fantastic, and uh, you just, you're answering some of the questions I was going to ask you myself, so that's cool. <laughs> but, um, but one of the things that I just have to say that I love about it is this is not um, uh, a culture that I know very much about. And for me, one of the greatest joys of reading a novel is when you really get transported into a world that you, you don't otherwise know, and it feels real. It feels like you really are getting to know this culture, these people, the society, and its mores. and, and uh, Anyway, that's the kind of book Do They Know I'm Running is... Uh, I'm really loving it, so I, I just had to share that.
1: I, I, if I can share it, you know, you get reviews and everything, they're always really nice, but um, a woman who was a student at a conference I was at recently, she teaches at Mills College, and her husband, um, her husband is Latino, and so her father-in-law was reading the book, and she came home from the conference and this is actually, this is the, the best compliment I've gotten so far, is this guy said, her father-in-law, who was almost finished, and he goes, is this a cholo with a white boy's name? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, no, he's a white boy. That's awesome. And he said, he is a poet of my people. That's really nice, dude. I know, that just, <laughs> bury me now. I'm never going to be happier. <laughs> Barry, talk about
0: how your I mean, your personal experience informs the character the Trevin brothers. I I believe that uh, you are the Trevin brothers.
2: Uh, Well, you know, so the Trevin brothers, um, uh, Ben's got, Ben, the older brother, is a black ops soldier, part of the Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC, that maybe some of you know about, you've read about. Seymour Hersh broke a story a couple years ago about how JSOC was reporting directly to Vice President Cheney and carrying out assassinations, which the media these days calls targeted killings because it sounds a little more sanitized. Um, JSOX runs all the Black Ops Special Forces, et cetera. Uh, Ben's younger younger brother, Alex, is a Silicon Valley attorney. So, you know, in a limited way, I know a little bit about these these worlds. I was never a Black Ops soldier, but I spent a little bit of time in the three years in the secret world and uh, about a decade in private practice and then with a Silicon Valley technology startup uh, as a lawyer. So I know that world reasonably well. Uh, but I wouldn't make too much of the similarities, I think. And I'll be curious for David's thoughts on this, too. But I think if you write a novel, you, you inv- inevitably get a lot of questions about how much of, is this character you, or how much have you put yourself in, of yourself into this character. And um, the short answer is I don't think it would be possible to write any character who didn't have characteristics that you, you have to recognize those characteristics in yourself. If you don't, then I don't know how you could, how could you come up with this stuff? But I think the trick is to find something in yourself and distill it out and then culture it in this new character who you've created, who you've tried to understand as best as you can by asking what does he want, what is he afraid of, what, is, what were his formative experiences or her formative experiences, et cetera. And then you, you culture this, this thing that you recognize yourself in this entirely new person, and it expresses itself in a different way. So on one level, you'll say, oh, if you know me, you might say, oh yeah, I recognize this or that in these characters my family likes to play. Um, and some good friends of mine like to play those games when I write a book. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's fun and it's informative, but again, you can only take it so, so far because, yeah, yeah, I might have started with something that I recognize in myself, but it expresses itself so differently in a different person.
1: Well, it brings up Grace Paley's great line, which is, don't write what you know, write what you don't know about what you know. And I think that's, that's really that great springboard. You always start with your experience, but it's that what if, it's the imaginative leap that, I don't know, I don't get excited until I start making, you know, it's like, and I don't mean making it up like just out of yeah. thin air, but asking those questions, you know, okay, I only know this much, yeah. but if I ask... You know, what if that happened? For example, you're saying, "Well, why two, then 92?" You know, and, and I'm thinking, "What if you know just just a couple on the border actually had to confront these two kids coming across? What would you know?" And and you know, for reasons which seem legitimate, which aren't you know racist or anything. And I just right. really wanted to own that position. You know, what if? And that's what engages you, and it's it's that sort of imaginative leap that I think really begins to get the juices flowing. If you're just reporting what you already know, it really isn't. You just don't feel energized, I don't think. No, I agree. Yeah. Well,
0: one of the things I think that uh, makes both these books uh, so, so um, involving to read is uh, I think a sense of uh, prescience when you engage upon those kind of imaginative forays. I think both of you guys kind of are uh, writing the headlines ahead of the headlines uh, in, in a fictional form. And I think that's really interesting the way that happens. I mean, David, this book, your, your book is – you know all about the the immigration crisis, and when we read it, it really gives us a great uh, a variety of perspectives on something that's happening and developing even as we speak. And the same with yours, Barry. I mean, there's something about the, these um, the CIA memos just in the the Chronicle today. I mean, these things are happening. I think what, when you guys engage in it in an imaginative fashion, I I really feel like you. Uh, get us get connected to the world in a way that's, i think um, more real than real in a sense
1: well uh, it's funny At a lot uh, when you talk to lawyers or pi's or or uh, people who've worked in government who write novels you'll find that very often what they say is the, re- the reason i write novels is so i can finally tell the truth <laughs> um, i mean I'm, trust me you know nobody in a courtroom wants to hear the truth and that whole notion of the whole truth nothing but the truth I and mean, everybody knows that's not true <laughs> Um, I mean, that's what evidence suppression is all about. Um, you know, you want to set the narrative. You want to, you know, you want your story to get to the jury, they'll tell their story, and then hopefully you've told yours a little more compellingly, and the jury will see that. And that's really what it's all about. But everything else that you know that was never presented in the courtroom, those are the things that almost every cop I know that writes, every lawyer I know that writes, that's what they want to bring to the to, to the table. Um,
2: Agreed. <laughs> and uh, so as someone who's um, obsessive about, uh, about trying to understand what's really going on in the country and, and blogging about it and then writing novels that are based on um, what I read and think about and, uh, and write about so much, it's been interesting for me to see how, uh, how life is imitating my art, which is itself intended to imitate life. I mean, even just... Uh, I don't know if anyone here, you know what WikiLeaks is? You all follow WikiLeaks? Um, yeah. So yeah. you know about the uh, Afghan war logs and um, uh, the Pentagon is threatening WikiLeaks now with unspecified uh, sanctions of some sort. I mean, it's actually kind of pathetic because there's nothing they can do. And it just sounds like bluster, but WikiLeaks just put up yesterday something um, on their website and it's just labeled. It's heavily encrypted and it's called insurance insurance. And the idea is if you try to arrest Julian Assange or to have him assassinated, and I know that sounds like, uh, that may sound like a far fetched thing, if you don't follow uh, the news the way I do, um, but President Obama has claimed the right to have um, even American citizens assassinated without any um, judicial review of du- or due process of any kind. And his counterterrorism advisor, John Brennan, has acknowledged that there's a list of people, including American citizens, who um, the government, when, when these people are found anywhere in the world, um, they'll be assassinated. So, so if anyone thinks it's that's, that's absurd that the government might assassinate the founder of Wikileaks, it's quite a bit less absurd than I wish it were. Anyway, um, to prevent this kind of thing from happening, Wikileaks has put up this thing called insurance, which it's, people speculate that it's, it contains say, the additional 15,000 uh, Afghan war log documents that Wikileaks hasn't yet released. And this parallels very closely to something that my um, antagonist in Inside Out does, which once he starts blackmailing the US government, he knows there's gonna be heavy opposition. um, And they're gonna try to 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 get a hold of him and make sure that he's not able to release these tapes, which uh, were they released, would get a lot of uh, highly placed individuals in a lot of trouble. So what he does is he creates an electronic dead man switch. So it's like, if you catch me, you can torture me, but you're not going to be able. But if I don't report in and turn off that trigger at preset intervals, the tapes will be released to all these different uh, news sites. And anyway, so that's just one example. But, but having written something like that in the course of um, writing this book and then seeing that WikiLeaks is doing this with the Pentagon right now, it just makes me shake my head a little. I don't know whether to feel good about it or bad. Maybe a bit of both.
0: You know, Barry, one of the things I like about your book is that it's, you have a, a great, it's a very dark Sense, but very fine sense of humor. Thank you. But it it uh, it must be difficult to to write spry thrillers in a world that's like constantly on the verge of self satire. Yeah, I'm just thinking about you know how an entire industry tanked when uh, Reagan said Mm -hmm. we must tear down this wall. You know, I mean that just uh, there. How many? Hundreds of novels just vanished shortly thereafter at the end of the Cold War.
2: Well, yeah, people always ask, um, af- when, so when the Cold War was over, the big question was, what are you thriller writers going to write about now that the Cold War is over? And then uh, Bush... Knitting. Knitting <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so what else can we do? It'll be Garden Mysteries now. Um, and then uh, when W became president, there were no more questions like that. But then when, but then when Obama became president, people started asking again and... Uh, my response to the, well, what are you going to write about now that Obama is president is don't you know that the cover up is always worse than the crime? So um, you can always count on someone in the US government before it was Bush, now it's Obama to do what's bad for America and what's great for thriller writers.
1: Well, I, I, but, and this is where, I mean, when I did Blood of Paradise in 2007, I was beginning to see, you know, this, the, the organized crime situation in latin america was already especially central america was already crystallizing and the fact that you had this stratification i mean it was stratifying during the clinton administration and finally one of his aides said you know we weren't really prepared for that which was you know when the civil wars were over and we thought oh well democracy is won we didn't realize that there's going to be arms caches all over these countries you know with paramilitary groups who basically could act completely without impunity and weren't really going to have too many jobs and they were right on the route between Colombia and Mexico in the United States where 50 percent of the drugs in the world get consumed what do you think they're going to do I mean it isn't like the you know like the IRA did they become a mafia nah let me see you know the Lebanese you know the paramilitaries they didn't become mafias did they well yeah but you know it's it's just absurd so I'm sitting here thinking this you know was really also sort of a national security threat and you know organized crime in in Latin America, its capacity to destabilize these governments, which are you know fragile to begin with, and are already and they've got 200 years of corruption behind them, and um, and for me it was just you know, when I saw, you know how one small family deals with the whole issue of immigration, and realizing that if one of them did get deported, with the situation now with organized crime having taken over the border and having the movement of people, they basically use people for decoys to move drugs. know they send a group of immigrants one way when border patrol descends on them they'll send the drugs another it's just the way they they work it and um... this meant that even more than than before when you know you had a coyote that you had to pay those guys are all gone you know now you're paying gangsters now you're involved with organized crime just to reunite your family what does that do what does that do to the families what does that do to us and that was kind of and and I I personally, you know, sit there and think, you know, we're we're locked now because of that ridiculous war in Iraq. We're stuck in a situation in the Middle East. And at our back door, we've got one of the most incredibly destabilizing situations you can imagine. And we're just hoping that the Medida initiative will work. Whereas when you realize that 25% of Mexico's GDP is wrapped up in drugs, they're not going to want to stop the drug trade. My God, the (laughs) country will descend into chaos. What they want to do is control it. Which is why everybody thinks that they're favoring the Sinaloa cartel, which is exactly what they're doing. Anyway, that's my riff. I just, I'll get off my soapbox. I'm done now. <laughs> no, I, I, that that was very interesting. One of the things I think that's
0: that's interesting about about your book is how uh, the the crime cartels have you know become de facto governments in in, in these countries, A- and the the great thing about crime fiction, we all know, is that. The characters can go from the. You get a view of the country and the community and the society from the very lowest of the dregs up to the top of the top, and that's still true. Only now, it used to be who was at the top were the, uh, were the politicians, or now it's the gangsters who are at the top, at least in South America.
1: Well, the, well, I mean they were for quite a while. I mean it, it's, you know, that type of soldier is a gangster anyway. And uh, it, the fact that their true colors are now obvious to all but a few, um, Senator Jeff Sessions being one of them, who apparently just doesn't seem to have gotten the memo. Um, he's a special I, man. Yeah, he's a, he's a truly special guy. Um, it's, uh, I don't know, it, it is truly alarming to me because I just know so many people there and, and very, very decent people who deserve much better governments than they've gotten. And, um, and this is not going to resolve itself anytime soon. I mean, it's, you've got poverty immigration, drugs, weak democratic institutions, and corruption, those five problems are all so tightly interwoven. You can't solve the drug problem without solving the other four, you just can't. And so this is, this is why immigration is such an important issue because it's not about who's here, it's about our relationship to Latin America. And if we mess that up, China is so ready to pounce on that region and say, you know what? We're your friend. America, once again, has shown that it's not so here let us help you and there's a lot of countries beginning to look and realizing that you know what it's no longer a bipolar world and we need to see you know find friends wherever we can and um, right now we're losing that battle and if we do if we go the Arizona route well we're gonna lose it for good and that's just And you talk about a, a national security problem that's nuts
0: well talking about national security you know when you were describing uh, these uh, Banana Republic uh, down, down south. I, it sounds a lot like uh, Barry's vision of America from, from the inside. And I was thinking about how um, you know, over the length of time we've seen uh, the Soviet Union, for example, go from, you know, a complete and somewhat insane dictatorship to something a, a chaotic democracy, and we're seeing our own chaotic democracy slide in the opposite direction. <laughs> and one of the things I think that Barry does very well is to give us that view, the, the reasoning of the people from the inside as part of your character arcs. That's what I really like about these uh, Ben Trevin books is that he starts out these books. He's kind of a right winger. I mean, in the first book, isn't he? Yeah.
2: Yeah, I love that phrase, Banana Republic. Um, in fact, I, I love so much of the nomenclature that we apply exclusively to other people, other countries, other cultures there 's so many tortures the new one um, we don 't torture we use enhanced interrogation techniques As the New York Times. other countries torture um, we don 't have political prisoners, we have detainees we don 't have political prison prisons we have detention facilities. we have good solid bombs, they have improvised explosive devices and um, we have an establishment, they have an oligarchy, go on and um, on. Israel has a security fence. Have you ever seen that thing? Um, I mean, if that's not a wall, there's no such thing as a wall. It's <laughs> 18 feet high, two rows of concrete with barbed wire on top. But it's, it's amazing that it's called offense. Anyway, um, like I said, sorry, it's, it's a particular obsession of mine. And uh, banana republic is a phrase that we never, we just reflexively apply to um, other countries. And you know how it gets, the only time it gets used here in the States is this, where, for example, John McCain will say it's absurd to talk about prosecuting former Bush <coughs> administration officials for torture or other malfeasance. What are we, some sort of banana republic? <laughs> Think about that for a minute. That's fascinating, really. Um, what defines a banana republic? I would say uh, the fact that the leadership is above the law and has impunity for, uh, against any sort of immunity, against any sort of legal consequences for law breaking. That's what a banana republic is. In a republic uh, under the rule of law, it doesn't matter whether you're a pauper or the president or anything in between, if you break the law then, uh, well, as Thomas Paine said, in America, the law is king. You'll be subject to the law, just like anywhere else. So when John McCain says, what do you think we are, some kind of banana republic, it's sad. I feel like, well, you're proving that we are indeed a banana republic. It's, it's crazy uh, liberal, uh, dirty hippie leftists like me who would prefer us not to be a banana republic, <laughs> but that's the way it goes. Anyway, um, as far as, uh, yeah, my um, my villains, you know, I really try hard to understand what motivates anyone who does bad things in my books. My earlier series, uh, John Rain, the half-Japanese, half-American assassin. Look, we know that there are assassins. We know there are contract killers in the world. So I spent a lot of time trying to understand through a variety of means. Where do these people come from? What are their formative experiences? What makes them tick? How are they able to do what they do for a living? I mean, again, we know they do exist. Who are they? really not some two-dimensional thing that never interests me. And likewise with the villains uh, in all my books, and particularly the more recent ones, um, look, when a guy like David Addington looks in the mirror, or Dick Cheney, I mean, choose your you know Darth Vader villain du jour, those people never see a villain in the mirror looking back at them. They don't. Everybody looks in the mirror and sees a hero. No matter what despicable, deplorable things people do, they never see a villain in the mirror. If they do, they commit suicide. And that's not interesting at the beginning of a novel. So... <laughs> <laughs> So I'm always curious. Unless he's left a very interesting encrypted message. <laughs> Somebody's <laughs> got to track it down. It's like. So, uh, so I, I do spend a lot of time, which is it's one of the joys of being a novelist. I mean, trying to understand how do people do things like this and, and feel, really believe that what they're doing is right and good. That is a, and that's
1: a, a brilliant point. And it's, something, it's the difference between the political novel and politics. In that, you know, as a novelist, you really can't just hammer one point of view. It's not going to be interesting. And as, as writers, as artists, you really do have to, you have to embrace these people who fundamentally disagree with you and just try to understand what does make them tick and do it sympathetically. Yeah. And um, I, mean, I don't know about you, but the book that I've always used for this uh, that really opened my eyes was uh, George Lakoff's um, Moral Politics, How Conservatives and Liberals Think. And it just opened. Um, I come from a Republican family. Uh, two of my brothers are, are very, very right wing, and I still didn't understand them until I read Lakeoff, and I kind of went, "Oh, now I get it." And the whole core notion of strength is a metaphor, yeah. and um, the, you know, the family is the core metaphor for both liberals and conservatives. It's a brilliant book, and it just sort of gave me a way into understanding. You know, th- they aren't crazy. They aren't, you know, not evil. all evil. They are, but they come from a completely different set of values that defines issues so fundamentally different than liberals do that you can see where sometimes it just looks like we're talking past each other. And it's kind of a shame. And, of course, liberals believe in discussion, so we try to understand conservatives. Conservatives do not necessarily believe that negotiation is valuable. They believe that, of course, enemies are to be destroyed, not negotiated with. So this is why, you know, um, uh, uh, Ann Coulter writes a book about, you know, how to talk to a liberal if you must. And, um, you know, and basically we're there to be mocked, belittled, silenced, and marginalized. And um, I just, I, so I sort of despair sometimes, but as a novelist, we're not, we can't take that route. We can't take the political hack route where we just mock the other side. It just, one, it's, it, it, it just makes lousy if if fiction. If you're a good
2: novelist, you can.
1: Yes, that's true. <laughs> if you're a good novelist. Speaking of which, why don't you tell everyone what you,
2: why you couldn't get to my book this week? <laughs> All right, you know, I, I, I will. I just have to mention it. Um, you know, Glenn Beck has a new... Well, it's called a thriller, but I really don't like to call it a thriller. I think it's unfair to thrillers because it's just not thrilling. has a new novel out called The Overton Window. And uh, Laura Flanders of Grit TV asked me if I would review it for this book she's writing uh, on Glenn Beck and Sarah Palin and, and the Wacky Right. And so, and it was a pretty short deadline, but I really wanted to do it. I mean, it's a terrible book. I mean, it's just on a craft level. It's really a terrible, terrible book. But it was fascinating on a metal level to read it. And uh, even though I did have to suffer through how boring the book was, uh, it was an interesting way to get a little bit of a peek into what makes Glenn Beck tick. And I, I was telling David the experience of reading Overton, um, which did sadly prevent me from getting more than 100 pages into David's excellent novel in time for the signing. But the, the good news is I was telling him, the first time I went to Paris, uh, my wife and I were living in Osaka at the time. And I don't know if, if anyone has been to Osaka, but I love Osaka, and I'm a big Japanophile. I've lived there on and off for four years in my life. Osaka's a really ugly city. So going from Osaka to Paris, I mean, it just couldn't be better. And going from Overton to Do They Know I'm Running? I mean, you just couldn't pick a better progression than that.
1: I um, You just reminded me of... Uh with the the notion of oh shoot it just went with that joke it just went out of my mind i'm sorry rick take it
0: (laughs) well one of the things that that interested me from your reading and, and in your book was this idea of information laundering? Yeah. I, I thought this was a really fascinating idea, and, and because that's that's what it is. It's like passing information. It's just like running dollars into one bank after another. You run the ideas and the messages from one bank to another till they come out to to your sympathetic level. And I, I wonder if you talk about how that kind of informs your story. And, and I mean, in a sense, you're kind of doing that too in your fiction, in a reverse. Um.
2: Well, what I'm trying to, yeah, I'm trying to um, expose the practice so that people will recognize what's going on. I can go on and on about this, but before I forget, I want to just suggest one thing. I don't know if anyone here reads Glenn Greenwald of Salon.com. Glenn Greenwald, two N's in Glenn. Just Google him and you'll find his site. Um, One of the best media critics, maybe the best media critic I know of alive. Just an amazing, amazing writer and thinker. Um, anyway, this notion, he writes about these things all the time, and, uh, and you can learn a lot more about these issues from him than you can from me. But the idea basically is this information, what I call information laundering, borrowing the term from a guy I've gotten friendly with, journalist Bart Gelman, who wrote a biography of Dick Cheney called Angler. Um, the idea is this. What the government does is the government has talking points, like we all have talking points. David has some talking points in it. I have some. You know, we want you to buy our books, and we're going to try to get you fired up so you buy several copies of each, um, and um, and give them out as gifts because autographed copies make great gifts. And why wouldn't you want to do that for the loved ones in your lives? So, <laughs> okay, so we have some talking points. Good call. <laughs> The government has its own talking points. Of course it does. But if the government... So then the question is, well, then why doesn't the government just issue a press release? Wouldn't that be more efficient? Uh, Just issue a press release and you get your talking points across. And the reason is this, that when the government issues a press release, we, the citizenry, know that we should discount it. I mean, the government's issuing this press release. We know it's self-serving. So it's not actually an effective way for the government to communicate its points to the citizenry. What they do instead, what the government does instead, is as various highly placed individuals, for example, someone like David Addington or the vice president himself, call up a favorite pet journalist. Um, By journalist, what I really mean here is stenographer and most of the established media does perform a stenographic function rather than an actual journalistic function. They leak, their talking points leak to uh, the pet journalist who dutifully writes them up as a news story. And when people read that news story in the New York Times or the Washington Post, they don't realize that the anonymous source gave this stuff to, um, well, in this case, it was um, um, uh, Mark Mazzetti of the New York Times who broke those stories about the videotapes. I mean, that wasn't investigative reporting. That was a source calling Mazzetti up and saying, we've got two tapes and then 15 months later, actually it was 15, they were using Mazzetti and Mazzetti went along with it. Because if you go along with it, you have access and you get to write these kinds of stories and that's what keeps you on the beat and gets you Pulitzer prizes and the uh, prestige uh, and favor of the powerful are, that you crave. So then we, the public, read these things in the newspaper and we think we're reading news and we don't recognize that these are plants, these are government talking points that's being laundered through the media so that it comes across as news stories, but it's really not. And if you don't understand that, if you don't understand how rampant the abuse of anonymity is uh, in the mainstream media, then you just, you really won't understand how thoroughly you're being manipulated. And there's, there's one more step I have to mention, because it's particularly relevant in the run-up to, uh, to the Iraq war. Uh, then Vice President Dick Cheney and others in the administration were leaking um, their talking points about aluminum tubes that, are being, that could be used to make nuclear weapons and other uh, Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. They were leaking these talking points to reporters like the New York Times' Judith Miller at the time, who then dutifully wrote them up as news articles, and they were digested as news articles by the public. Okay, so far, so bad. It actually gets worse. Cheney then went on all the Sunday morning talk shows and cited those New York Times stories as evidence for the existence of the aluminum tubes and the WMDs. So it's a perfect psyops operation. And again if you don't recognize these things. It's really, I mean to laugh because it's so disturbing, but it's also beautiful in a sick way. I mean, here's a guy who's going on the news and citing as evidence for his propositions, the very propositions that he planted in the news. It's a complete bootstrap operation from go. It's made up out of whole cloth. And uh, that's what passes for news for uh, mo- most of what I loosely call the establishment media today. Again, if you don't know those things, then you, d- you just don't understand the way the media is complicit in government information operations. These are the establishment media is not a watchdog. They're not comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. They're part of the establishment, or called the oligarchy, that is uh, that's causing so many problems in this country today.
0: David, could you talk about how that works with the immigration debate? Because you've been inside
1: there. And well, it's seen not, it how it is isn't it's just the immigration debate. It's the organized crime situation. I mean, most Mexican journalists who try to report on organized crime in Mexico are either killed or they just they have to leave. I mean, it is, you know, it's an enforced silence. They, they do not report. There, there may be pictures of bodies and so on and so forth on the street, and even mm-hmm. those guys can be threatened but anybody who tries to do a serious investigation and, and, and the thing, it's, it's the government as well because you try to report about the government you know, corruption and it's either the government or the gangsters who are going to come and get you. So it's, um, it, it's turned out that the most reliable sources of information on organized crime are people within the communities where things are happening and they're tweeting and twittering you know, with each other and they're getting online and they're reporting these things to and, and that's what's coming out. I mean, a brilliant book about Juarez is uh, Mark Bowden's Murder City. And he just says, the first thing you learn is there are no facts. You know, and it's just, you know, he's trying to report and just realize that, you know, there will be a body, you know, you'll hear, you know, uh, someone was killed, but by the time you get there, the body is gone. And you ask the neighbors, what happened? They said some men in uniforms came and they took the body away. And you go to the morgue, where's the body? There is no body. So you know, we're talking with like a perfect storm, with, you know, like I said, corruption, with, the, with, with drug money. With the the war that you know what happened was in Mexico you had the the PRI which was in power for seventy years eighty years or something ever since the revolution nineteen ten and when Vicente Fox came in these generations of of bribery and corruption that had, that pretty much calmed down the drug war went away and so these guys had to redevelop their fights for who was in control of what and then the Gulf cartel had a bunch of assassins that had actually been you know anti drug uh, special operations guys called Los Zetas who then defected and then trained their own guys and these guys just went rogue in a major way and escalated the violence to a sadistic level that nobody expected. And then it, you know, everybody had to respond in kind or be seen as weak. And now what you've got is the Juarez cartel realizing they're losing the war, doing things deliberately trying to get the United States involved because they don't trust the Mexican government to be an honest broker. Because they know that the Mexican government is favoring the Sinaloa cartel. So they attacked embassy personnel in Juarez. They launched a car bomb to make it look like a terrorist attack saying, look, United States, please invade so we'll have somebody we can trust to run the drug trade. Okay, that's uh, now. So you want to know how nuts it is? It and and you uh, know, of course, Mexico is a fabulous culture. So think. I mean, you've got you know Santa Muerte, you know Saint Death, because they've lost faith. There's so many people who've lost faith in the actual traditional church, and now they worship this sort of figure of death, who's also at least like the Virgin, but it's a figure of death, and a lot of the gangsters, you know, actually, you know, b- b- worship at this at the altars of this this figure. It's just a. Um, it's an amazing situation, and the thing—the the great thing about it—is if you, I don't care how crazy you were, how how weirdly you've made it up, it couldn't possibly be even as half as interesting as what's actually going on, <laughs> just because of the 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 stew of things going on. And so, anyway, I'll stop on that. <laughs> I could go on, but I won't. Well, you
0: know what's interesting to me is what you're both talking about too, is that um, the blogosphere, the electronic world, internet journalism is the only place where we can get something vaguely approaching the truth, but even there, it, I mean, that's a you know Sturgeon's law comes into comes into heavy. Uh,
1: well, okay. Well, for example, in the Arizona law, when when Governor Brewer says, you know, well, we have to, you know, because of the crime situation, we have to, you know, we have to crack down, you know, on our gardeners and our housekeepers, um, and there's there was a spew of articles about. Well, what is the crime situation in, in, in the border? And it ends up that it's at the lowest rate. And it, you know, the, for the last 10 years, crime has been descending in almost the entire border region. San Diego has the lowest crime it's ever had in 45 years. But the hysteria of crime is at an all-time high. And despite these articles, that hysteria keeps going because of these echo chambers on talk radio and other sources, which just keep on amping up. Oh, and here is another story. And I mean, you want horrific stories from Mexico. They're legion, but they're not here. Yeah. But it's this fear that oh, at any minute it could creep across the border, and uh, that is a legitimate fear. But going after again, you know, gardeners and housekeepers ain't going to do it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just. I this is the biggest bait and switch I've ever seen in, in my life. Where let's attack crime, and we'll go after these guys who you know basically want to dig ditches today, or you know are going to work in your garden, are going to do your roof, are going to you know clean your house, or, I, and America's bought into it. And why they're scared of their gardeners, I have no clue. Uh, they feel guilty for not doing the lawn themselves.
0: <laughs> I never I, feel I, I guilty
1: <laughs> for not doing my lawn. Just let me tell you that right now. Uh, Barry, why don't
0: you talk – you're part of the blogosphere here. Uh, and talk about the importance of that and, and how that – does that uh, – is that going to play out more? I know your, your new novel – Suggests that there will be one to follow, I'm hoping, shortly. Um,
2: yeah, it'll, it'll be about a year from now if all, if all goes well. Uh, it's funny. I, when you say that, you're part of the blogosphere, I have to admit that that makes me very proud. Um, I am proud to be part of the blogosphere because I think that uh, the establishment media is so corrupt. At this point, you know, and it's not to say, like, when I say things like this, it sounds like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat, you know, like there's some conspiracy. That's not the point. It's all about incentives. I mean, if you've read Freakonomics, for example, or Super Freakonomics, really fun books. And then the second one, the authors say, look, we, we, we just have no organizing theme, but actually if we, our editor said we have to have an organizing theme. So this is in the prologue of the second book. He says, so our organizing theme, I guess, is this, incentives matter. That's it. Incentives affect behavior. And uh, that's what I'm getting at when I say that the uh, the mainstream media is uh, is in collusion with the government. I mean, there are certain incentives that are in place to reward journalists for being stenographers. And, and so, of course, um, most people will follow the incentives, and that's the way it works. The blogosphere has arisen not just because technology makes it capable. I mean, just because technology can do something, the thing is not going to happen. There has to be a need for it also. In other words, the technology is necessary but not sufficient. So the, um, the cause for the rise of the blogosphere is, as an antidote, I think, a response to a corrupt and collusive uh, establishment media. And to be part of it um, makes me feel very proud. Uh, like well, I'm doing And something you should, good.
1: because I've got to tell you, uh, if, if you haven't read Barry's blog, I really do recommend it. And in particular, whenever he does write a piece, his source material, he always lists his source materials. And I have s- lost more days than I care to <laughs> tell you reading your source materials because in fact it was in the torture debate where there was an entire you know there was a meta argument <laughs> on you know how to argue torture and I was fascinated by it and you know I wouldn't have known it except for you and this is you know the careful you know, blogger is the one who says look you know if you don't believe me and you shouldn't you know check these things out as my background and I think that that's something which you know, because what you find, unfortunately, in the irresponsible blogosphere is just, you know, if we keep on just saying the same, it's it, the Nazi trick. Right, we just say, right. say the same lie over and over again, you're going to buy into it. And that's what's happening in immigration right now. You know, that we should fear, you know, the Latinos among us. And it's just a drumbeat that just absolutely sends me over the edge. But that's very, very true. And so when you find somebody like Barry who just takes the time to say, okay, not only, you know, do I believe this is true, but... Read the sources yourself, see what you come up with. And I, I think more and more of us who feel, you know, almost pathologically misinformed by the media, you know, rely on this now. And, that, and thank God it's there.
2: Yeah, I feel the same way. And it's funny, all the things that, um, that mainstream media types criticize the blogosphere for, it's actually fascinating on a psychological level. I mean, for example, David Brooks, who's about as establishment a writer as I can think of, um, rarely, if ever, cites evidence for his propositions about what Americans want. I mean, here's a guy who, um, who lives in Manhattan and writes for the New York Times, is doing perfectly well, I mean, you can imagine, goes to all the right parties, et cetera, et cetera. And he's always speaking for what Americans want. And he never cites polls. So I mean, it's, it's like you want to send him a letter and say, God, if only somebody, somebody, someone would invent something where uh, they sent around a questionnaire to a random sample of the population so that it could be determined somehow scientifically what people were really feeling. We could call that thing a poll. If only someone would invent, oh, wait a minute. Um, why does he do that? I don't know. And then, um, and then people like Brooks will criticize the blogosphere for... Um, <laughs> for uh, not providing evidence, which is, which is really shocking. Um, because to me, that's what, what the good parts of the blogosphere really are all about. Or for example, this one kills me. It's like, well, you don't know who's writing this thing. I mean, uh, anonymous sources, <laughs> like, oh my god. You know, one of the things that, m- that is most rotten and corrupt about the establishment media is, uh, is there rampant use of anonymous sources as um, as background for the, sten- the stenographic reports they type up? And in the blogosphere, again, so, you know, the good parts of the blogosphere, um, it's part of the culture that you have to source your evidence and provide evidence for your arguments that's the way i think that's the way journalism and argument really ought to be and and one last thought i said about the bloggers versus scare tactics same thing as about latinos people say like it's like the wild west out there i mean it's totally unaccountable these people are crazy look i don't know how many blogs there are in the world there must be millions i guess right maybe let's just say for the sake of argument that only one percent of one percent or even one percent of one percent of one percent of the blogs are really good that probably still equals thousands of blogs, more than any one person can read, possibly read. So the fact that there's a lot of crap out there doesn't mean that there's not a lot of gold too. I mean, it's just an absurd argument. That's intended you to to stay with the branded establishment media, which uh, theoretically produces all the fit, the news that's fit to print, and yet really doesn't.
0: Well, I wanna ask one last question. Uh, You're a part of the blogosphere, and I know I've read a lot of stuff on your website about, about, you know, the backgrounds for your books. Mm -hmm. Talk about deciding what goes into the blog and what goes into the books and that kind of uh, feedback loop between the two. Uh, Barry, you you must be kind of, find yourself sometimes at a loss for wondering this completely insane thing that's happening, should I save this for my novel? <laughs> well,
2: you know, it's, it's funny. I deal with some of the same material, obviously, but um, in a different way. When uh, – if I'm blogging about it, then I try – I make an argument and I try to uh, – that's an opinion. And then I try to back that up by connecting the opinion with actual evidence through argument. I mean I try to make it as persuasive as I can, but it's a straight – uh, persuasion piece. When I deal with these things in my novels, then I'm trying to dramatize them, not in the way Glenn Beck did in The Overton Window, which is really just to, to put the veneer of a novel over a collection of political speeches, and it's pretty damn dull reading, uh, but rather by, by trying to get behind the things that I blog about so that I can understand the motivations of the actors and the way these things, even though we can't actually see this in a news report. Um, maybe what I can do is come up with an explanation, a dramatic explanation in the form of a novel that depicts what must have really gone on or what at least could have really gone on behind the scenes of the things that I blog about so I don't, I don't usually stop and say oh uh, do I use that for the blog or use that for the novel I mean, on any, on any given day I'll, I'll, if something strikes me I'll blog about it and then it'll feed some other maybe novelistic portion of my mind. I'll tell you the one thing that I do that's uh, that's totally crossover and if you pick up inside out you'll see this at work government officials just say the damnedest things <laughs> <laughs> so
0: and, and I guess an, actually, an Art just, link letter show in the
2: making <laughs> <laughs> so you know, some of what I've written in Inside Out might seem outlandish if you don't follow these things and for that reason I have a bibliography in the book and a list of sources and also um, I use epigraphs throughout the book to As a kind of flavoring so that you get an idea of of what government officials and establishment journalists are really saying uh, and really believe. So it's like, look, if you think this is outlandish, here it is coming from the horse's mouth. Make of it what you will.
0: Some part of the horse. (laughs)
2: You know, I I finally remembered
1: what it was I wanted to say before when you were talking about Glenn Beck's book and and how it's basically just he creates characters who can just mouth his political beliefs and I've always been astonished by the popularity of of uh, Ayn Rand or Ayn Rand or whatever because I remember I got like six pages into The Fountainhead and I just went, this is the worst comic book (laughs) I've ever read I mean, they could at least put pictures in the damn thing (laughs) And I mean I, or what I say, you know, when I'm trying to be glib and cute at the cocktail party, I'll say this is Nietzsche for dummies. <laughs> and you know, I just but that's their that's their idea of a great book. And it's not surprising then that their novels would be, again, these programmatic things. It's like prop. It's like everything they accuse the Soviet Union of doing, you know, it's like that's their that's their taste in fiction. Um, that's great. <laughs> but it's true. When you do I mean the thing is when you're making an argument and you believe something, um, it's a fundamentally different thing. It's like, uh, whereas when you're writing a novel, you're really about the experience of it. It's not that there's a right and wrong. It's like, how does it feel? Yeah. The novel gives you a sense to explain how does it feel to be in these situations? What is the experience of them? And as Barry said, you know, what do these characters fear? What do they love? What do they want? and to throw you into that. You know, and what I wanted what I wanted for example in my book to show is that if somebody really did say, you know, well no matter what, we're going to get the family back together again. Well, what does that no matter what entail? And what happens to an 18-year-old kid who's an American kid wants to be a rock star, gee, like every other 18-year-old I know, you know, and then suddenly gets thrown into the real world in a real major way. What happens to him? You know, how does he grow up? What does he see? What does he learn? What loyalties get Destroyed. Which ones get reborn? And so it's it's not so much a political thing as much as an experiential thing. And I think that's that's
2: really the difference. That's a nice way to put it. And I just I just had this awful thought of what. This book would have been like if Glenn Beck had written it. I mean, you would have had Roke saying, "Well, my hopes and dreams as a musician are X, but the man keeps me down." And to would say, "You're just lucky you didn't go to Iraq because we could have." Abu- it would just yeah. be a page after page of speech, and there's none of that. I mean, it's just you just get uh, a dramatic view into the interior lives of these characters and see the way they interact and their tangled relationships and the way they they deal with the world, which is what a novel look. I don't you know what a novel should be. You can use a a novel for obviously for a lot of different things. Tom Clancy uses his novels for an examination of military technology, which I find dull, but a lot of people love it. So there's a lot you can do with a novel. That's one of the things that's wonderful about the form. But, but I think using an entire novel just for a collection of political speeches is probably not a great idea.
0: Which is the absolutely what neither of these books are. Now, are, do we have uh, any questions from the audience?